right. Hey, let's get rolling here on the uh, PDX Media Good Old Days podcast. Regan Ramsey, thank you for uh, spending some time with me. This is going to be fun. Well, I'm glad you wanted to talk to me. I have a lot of uh, positive personal memories of those years, so I hope you do and the rest of the people watching this feel the same way. Well, uh, positive memories, and then when you talk about them, you realize, at least in my case, how they shaped the rest of your time. Well, that's true. Uh, I know it did for me. Uh, you know, when I was news director there, uh, I feel proud of what we accomplished collectively. And as I spent more time as a consultant and a uh, person starting newsrooms around the world, I discovered I know a lot more now about how, how to help somebody be better at what they do. And, you know, when I was news director, all I could do is say, you didn't do your best on that story. You need to try harder. But I didn't put enough time into working with you to tell you why that story could have been better or how it could have been better. Yeah, we, uh, we all learn in hindsight. Uh, it, I always found those instances in the news... I agree with what you said because it happens a lot because we're so busy and we're moving on, moving on. But when you had time to talk with people and work with people and, uh, you know, about storytelling and news judgment, uh, we all got better if we had time to do that. And I like to do that when I was more experienced with some of the younger folks that I work with, because uh, you could, you know, you could just see the value of it pay off down the road. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really interesting. It, um, my belief is after two or three years of my tenure there as news director, everybody in that newsroom was highly accomplished. You know, some were better than others, but very few duds. But the um, expectation was so high for everybody that you're right. You didn't have a lot of time to congratulate yourself on the last piece you did there because you had to do another one. You know, just, you know, the, the process never stopped. And when I look back on some of the stories that people did, you know, that it, it's an incredible variety. And I think that what the strengths that we were able to develop there are that we had a range. We had stories that made people happy and made them sad, made them mad. Um, the entire range of human emotions, opposed to just here's what happened today, and the police tape behind me will show you the cops are here on the scene. What the hell kind of story is that? Yeah, and 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 that's what I kind of uh, frame as the good old days. I understand that news evolves over time and it becomes different things, and there are different requirements of news directors and budgets and and reporters and things like that. But when we were doing it, uh, we were uh, as a group under your leadership and other leadership as well. We were great storytellers and we covered the news. We also told stories about what our community was doing. And, and a, a newscast was all encompassing of, here's what's going on. Here's how people are feeling. Uh, you're gonna be angry about this story. You're gonna wanna do something about it. This story is gonna make you feel good about yourself and your town. Yeah, and and uh, it's funny because I watched your interview with Ligatuda and you said you were disappointed about not being a weekend anchor because at the time the truth is you were evolving into a um, skilled storyteller and at the time just being a, a reporter on sports didn't 
use those skills to the best. That as you told more and more stories and you became more and more a storyteller out in the field or a person who would be live or a combination of all those, you started to get quite good at it. If you look back over your um, collection of stories, they were, they were not all light and they weren't all serious. It was a really nice combination. The ultimate of that, of course, when you get somebody who's with the gravitas of John Tuttle, he can tell the stories about lambs jumping around out in a field or the singing bridge, but he could also tell a story about analyzing the Rajneesh sect and where it was at any one time. So he, he was able to balance that without compromising his credibility. And that's what I never wanted to happen with people doing personal stories. A story you did that uh, you might have forgotten, but it's, Melt put it up on the internet, it's still there is that self-cleaning house story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fantastic story and you don't get in the way of it and you don't make fun of her and you're not, you're not making her seem like she's a nut. You're saying, here's somebody has got a vision and they're actually taking action on it. And at the end of it, you just feel good having watched the story. Uh, well, thank you. And, uh, and, and thank you for that description of that time in my career where I was a young sports reporter and the weekend sports job was open and that's what I wanted to do next. And I got passed up for it three times and I, I was disappointed. Uh, and, uh, and as I chatted with Lagatuda and, and with you now, uh, that inevitability or that process, uh, looking back, it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, uh, no. what happened then led to leading to maybe 30 years of a career of, of doing news and sports in Portland. Whereas if I'd gone into being the weekend anchor and then the sports director, my, uh, and may different market or things like that, my whole trajectory would have been different. Well, it would have been. And, and even at that time, I mean, I couldn't make a big announcement of the sports department, but at that time sports was an ever diminishing subject in news. There was mm -hmm. less, less room for it. All the research said uh, viewers, um, it's okay, but they don't really have a big interest in it. And so your highest and best use for you personally and certainly for the newsroom was to, to take advantage of your skills as a, a reporter and an interviewer and ultimately later becoming an anchor. So I think you followed the perfect trajectory, but as you said, well, it's easy in hindsight. <laughs> well, and then I thank you for your wisdom, which I didn't agree with back then, because <laughs> it's certainly I'm certainly thankful for the track that I ended up taking. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I won't use the person's name. Yeah, we don't use names here. <laughs> although I don't think she'd care. But uh, on the, kind of in that same time frame, a, one of the female reporters came in and did the oh, you got a minute and then shut the door. So I know, man, here it comes. <laughs> and she said, I want to anchor. I've come to the point where I think I'm doing all the things I want to do as a reporter. Now I want to be an anchor. I think that's the next step. And I said, I can appreciate uh, ambition. I can appreciate you want to be there. You're not ready and you won't succeed. I said, what I will do, if you're willing to put in the effort, I will give you training opportunities and opportunities to do live shots and do fill-in anchoring 
And those sorts of things that will build your skills at a desk or in front of a studio camera that are totally unlike being a reporter sitting in an editing room. And to her credit, she said, okay, that sounds fair. I'll work mm -hmm. with it. And in about six months, she ended up in a, in a significant anchoring job. So she and I have shared that story. <laughs> Regan, you are, uh, you're a heck of a lot uh, smarter than I thought, and you were then, than I thought you were when I was working for you. <laughs> That's nicer than say you're not as stupid as I thought you were. <laughs> well, uh, let me just say this, because now you came, uh, we'll get back to, I just want to know, you came to the news department, was it in 83 or early 84? It was after Paul. Uh, 83 news department. I came to KGW. I was a film producer. Yeah. Anything on film that somebody would pay me money for. Commercials, television programs. I did ABC sports shows. I did, you know, I was doing okay. And it was right about 1980 when uh, KGW had acquired the afternoon show PM magazine. Mm hmm and it was not doing well. And they said, we got Group W on the show, got a hold of KGW and said, you guys either fix this or we're gonna move it to another station. So they let the word out there looking for a producer and I talked them into hiring me. So I got there in about 1980 and PM was not very hard to fix. I mean, there were talented people and it was a great format and with a lot of, changes in production and what you saw on screen and all that, it, it was a huge success quickly. And I'll just digress into one very funny story because oh. it was getting grim ratings. It was down about a seven or eight share or a seven or eight rating at about a nine share. Today that'd get you in the hall of fame. But then of course we had fewer channels, but after my first rating book, the ratings came out we had a 17 rating and a 35 share. <laughs> and the, the general manager, I will use his name, was Dan Woodring. Yeah. He came down to me. He says, wow, look at the ratings, you know, 1735. He says, that's pretty good. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. He says, well, tell me what you're going to try and do to keep your job for another rating period. <laughs> and I said, Dean, Back you're inspirational. <laughs> Backhand slap compliment. <laughs> Let all the people know what a cutthroat business TV is. Uh, and so uh, you you eventually became uh, manager of that department. I, I guess I called the position was production manager, right? In charge yeah, of production that show, manager. advertising. Watched over, managed whatever was produced out of the station in terms of entertainment or public affairs. Um, well, I didn't manage public affairs, but I made sure they got on the air. Uh, any commercial production, just whatever this building produced. And for me, that was enjoyable too, but it was uh, not very fulfilling creatively. And right about that time was when the newsroom started to really struggle. And they, they quietly told the current news director, we're going to give you the opportunity to start looking because 
you're going to be leaving. And he went to San Diego. He got a he got yeah. a he got a uh, news director he, job in San Diego. Good for him. Although they were about the same market size, it's still Part San Diego. Almost the same, but yeah, he definitely landed on his feet. Even better weather feet. And so I I've said I want to do that. I know I can fix it. And at the time, which I didn't use for any of the people in the newsroom, but I did for the owners up in Seattle, I said, right now, you've got four stations. You've got the three networks and the independent station. Three networks are running news. Independent station is running reruns of Chip and Dale, the chipmunk cartoons. KGW is in fourth place behind Chip and Dale. So your news is getting beat by chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that was a compelling argument. So, you know, the, the early days down there were pretty rough. So but, I met I met you first when you were uh, the in charge of production. Uh, I know you don't remember this, but I do. Uh, uh, I was an intern in 82, and Doug Lemire was covering the U U.S. Senior Open at the Portland Golf Club. Um, and yeah. he, he, and I think Craig Smith and you guys got together. You, we sold uh, the weekend to where we would have half hour cut-ins about this tournament yeah. with, with, you know, Arnold Palmer was there and there were really big names, uh, but, but Doug had, you know, just recovered from a car accident. He wasn't very mobile. So they sent me out as an intern to kind of help. And I basically for four days was running around that golf course, um, and, and even editing the video, uh, at, you know, cause we had photographers out there and all that kind of stuff and you know like on day two or three somebody said well uh, you got to go get uh regan shooting at uh the ninth hole you got to go get he's got something really good you got to go get his tape and i said who's regan because because <laughs> you weren't a news photographer that i was used to working with you know or doug vernon that kind of thing and i have no idea who you were but you were I, you know you were a camera person and so i just i just came up and said i need your tape I didn't know who I was talking to. And, and I think you turned around and said, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we both uh, met each other under fire. So uh, actually, I, I regarded that being able to do shooting and editing and all that as a, an important component in understanding what the people I was supposed to supervise in the newsroom were doing. Right. And I think it really did make a difference early in the game. If you recall, a previous news director in union negotiations referred to the cameramen as mindless button pushers. Oh, I, heard, <laughs> I heard that once a week, <laughs> sarcastically. So when I took over, I had to get all the cameramen together and say, I do not regard you as mindless button pushers. Because that's what I am. <laughs> oh, so... Um, so it, uh, again, the date was like '83 that you came. I may have been '82, somewhere in there. Yeah, because yeah. I started. Uh, Paul Sands, who was the news director who went to San Diego, hired me in January of '83, and he was gone pretty quick. It might have been the summertime or the fall or something like that. I think I. It was in the summer. I took over quickly. It had to be in the summer because. Uh, I'm sure it was. I, yeah. I'm sure that was it because I know we wouldn't have got into fall with introducing a whole new procedure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just want to say that I was a very young, inexperienced reporter with lots to learn, uh, and you scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
you weren't, uh, you know, you weren't a typical news director. You weren't, uh, you weren't a, a news guy who'd been a producer and, and an assistant news director and, and working your way up the corporate ladder. Uh, you came from a different department. You had a different perspective. You had a, a different demeanor. And, uh, and I didn't know how to handle it at my age. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Nobody did. Uh, <laughs> I, t- I tell the story about John Tuttle, who was sort of the top of the heap in the newsroom. He and I had been cordial in my early years there at KJW in the production department. When I took over down in the newsroom, I think it was a year before he spoke to me. (laughs) I couldn't get him to even say, yeah, I'll do the story. I mean, it was just, (laughs) he put me through about a 12-month trial by fire before he agreed to, okay, maybe this guy isn't going to be a disaster after all. Well, I mean, I think in hindsight, again, I was a scared little puppy that back then didn't, you know, didn't know uh, uh, how to handle a newsroom. I was learning as I went. But in hindsight, you uh, you brought this new perspective, a different perspective. You you weren't the same kind of news director who came in, you know, the old joke, uh, get out three envelopes. The first envelope says build a new set. If that doesn't work, take out the second (laughs) envelope, uh, change your anchors. If that doesn't work get out three envelopes because you're leaving. I mean, yeah. you just had a different uh, perspective on, and, and it was refreshing and obviously effective. It worked. You know, I can remember it was about two years and we finally got to be number one and we were starting to really have an impact. And uh, all the research showed that we were achieving um, solid stability so our viewer base was much stronger than it had ever been. And we had started making money and, and not losing like they were before. But I'll tell you my favorite story about that period is I'm in my office and, and I'd been up in Seattle and spent time with all the uh, executive staff and everything. But the owner of the station was a woman named Dorothy Bullitt, as you know. Loved her. 85 years old. I'm in my office one day and this woman walks into my office with a cane and sits down. She pushed the door shut. I didn't want to say, who are you? I kind of figured out who it was. She says, well, Mr. News Director, he said, tell me how things are. So I said, well, I'm glad you came here. I'm glad you asked. I said, our expenses are down 12%. Uh, We've had a morning news. We've had a day. Weekend news, it's much more substantial. Uh, revenues are up. Uh, we're keeping stable staff levels. Uh, we're changing technology. She held her hand up. And she said, stop. She said, never give me that kind of a analysis again. Never. And I sat there and I said, can you help me understand where I went wrong? (laughs) She said, I don't care about money. She said, I got a lot of money. I'm an old lady. I have lots of money. I've had a lot of success. My newsrooms are the core of what we are. She said, you're here to make a difference. You're here to make an impact on the community. You're here to make people understand things. You're here to make people's lives measurably better. Here's your marching order. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. 
So you do that, you'll be fine. <laughs> and I took that as an open book to do whatever I wanted to do. And as you know, we did outrageous things. That uh, Don't we miss the days? That was the good old days when yeah. Dorothy Bullitt told us those words. Uh, I wish every journalist could hear that. I do too, because almost... I mean, I've worked with newsrooms all over the world and none of them have ownerships that say, I got plenty of money. <laughs> that's the first thing they want. I'll digress into another international story. It's very quick, but go. when I would go into one of these big organizations and I'd say, you know, tell me what you want. What's your goal? If you bring me in, what's your goal? What do you want to have happen? And invariably they'd say, my goal is to be number one. And I'd say, well, it's not a goal, uh, it's an aspiration. But if you want to be number one, I can make you number one in one week. And they'd go, huh? I'd say, I'll tell you how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put your news anchors in clown suits. <laughs> I said, I guarantee you, everybody in the country will start watching. They'll never watch you again, but they'll start watching. So if you want long-lasting success, I'll come in. If you want tricks, I'm not your guy. <laughs> so I never put you in a clown suit. No, you did not. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you did do for me, it kind of along that lines of, hey, you're not ready. I'll give you some experience. And then um, is uh, you brought me in at, when we started that morning news program. Nancy yep. Francis was anchoring along with Teresa Richardson. It had been on for about six months. And Sharon Mitchell. Uh, Sharon Mitchell came along after Teresa. Yeah. yeah. And you said, um, uh, we need to have a male presence on that. Would you come in and do sports? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I kind of, you know, you want me doing sports at uh, 530 in the morning and then covering the Blazers at night. And um, you and I kind of came to the realization is, yeah, we can do that. I ended up working a split shift for about two years, but I was able to get that anchoring experience uh, and uh, was willing to, you know, drive back over the I-5 bridge, take a nap and come back and cover whatever sports stories we were covering. Uh, that was, uh, that was invaluable. It was hard work, but it, it got me the experience, experience of, you know, being on the desk, producing newscasts, working with other anchors. Yeah, it made a big difference, and look what happened. I mean, you went on. I'm serious. You went on to to a remarkable career in this market. I mean, you went from a kid out of college to a main anchor. That's a big deal. Uh, again, I bow to your wisdom that I did not understand when I was <laughs> <laughs> when I you you were my Yoda, and I didn't know it. <laughs> well, at least I looked like him. <laughs> oh, uh, what other, uh, uh, you know, each, each kind of era uh, of has its big stories. What were the big stories that we had to cover while you were there? Lots of them. Uh, the Rajneesh was by oh. far the biggest. And, you know, we, we ended up getting a Peabody Award for the best documentary, best uh, local television documentary in America. Uh, so that was the biggest story. Uh, we covered it far more intensely than anybody. That was in the early stages of satellite and 
microwave transmission. So it took a lot of technical effort to be able to cover it the way we did. Have you seen the documentary Wild Country? I have. That was, yeah. I, I, that was such a trip down memory lane. And I kept sitting there watching it. I was still a sports reporter then, so I wasn't covering it. But I'd sit there and go, oh, there's Walden. There's John Tuttle. Uh, you know, Brian Robertson shot that. <laughs> All the people that we worked with. <laughs> everybody did it. And, and when I got that satellite truck and everybody, the guy at Channel 2 at the time said, oh, he's just trying out tricks and show business and all that. How many people are not doing live television today? Everybody does it. The satellite that truck, satellite yeah. truck gave us the advantage of being able to be on the scene of a story as it was developing. But if you'll remember, we didn't just go and say, I'm standing in front of the dam that just collapsed. Back to you, Tracy. You'd actually tell the story. It was built by Earth, and it wasn't built uh, adequately, and there have been two floods, and blah, blah, blah. And you'd tell the entire story. So being there live was important, but being there live with substance is what I was after. And so the Rajneeshis, there were a couple of big murder cases that guy that was killing Michael. people, the guy that was killing people over in Oregon City, he was killing women and uh, I, I know his name, but I hesitate to use it on air. He had killed a number of people and the they finally got the guy they thought it was, and he had remnants in his fireplace. And um, I'll, I'll tell him aside, I'll probably make all the journalists mad at me, but uh, right as this guy's trial was coming up and it was really a big deal, he'd killed several women. One of the women got away and he didn't kill her, but he'd had her held captive and I can't remember who it was, but somebody had an interview with her. So we have an interview with, with the woman who has, has gotten away from this accused uh, serial killer. And we're figuring out what we're going to put on the air. And Mike Schrunk, who was a district attorney at the time, called me up and he said, listen, I know you have the right to broadcast whatever you want to broadcast. But he said, if you air that before this trial, this guy will get off. There's no possibility we can convict with that evidence being presented uh, in public prior to the trial. I said, it's the only time I've ever done this. I said, I can promise you that tape will not air until the trial is over. I didn't want to carry on my conscience that my newsroom was responsible for this serial killer skating. But the, the stories that stick with me the most or the ones that would present ethical decisions or they'd present um, decisions on my part that I wanted to protect the newsroom. And if I had to take a lot of heat for it, so be it. And it's not like I'm um, uh, the protector of all the news people. It was just, you know, that's what we are. We're an organization to gather the story and gather the news. And if uh, the management doesn't like it or an advertiser doesn't like it or it makes somebody uncomfortable, that's what Dorothy Bullitt said, you know, afflict the comforted. So uh, I had two or three of those and they were over usually not big issues, but the story got turned into a big issue. Once and, we did it. <laughs> uh, the, the, the one that Pat Cruz did this story, I remember because 
she didn't remember it. I had coffee with her a couple of years ago and I, with her daughter. And I was telling her daughter, gee, your mom did the story that really had impact. That we were going along and on the radio and KGW had an AM and an FM station, but radio was a big deal in Portland then. There were a lot of stations that were popular. And all the stations were running this ad for prior to the car show, they're running this ad that said, coming to Portland, the Star Drive 2000, gets 50 miles to the gallon, never needs lubrication, uh, made with renewable resources, with outrageous stuff. And it was playing all the time. So I'm in a morning meeting one day and I said, I want to know what this, somebody find me a picture of this car. They're making all these ads, they're making all these claims. I've never heard of this car. I don't know who makes it. Somebody find this car. And there's kind of dead silence around the room and Pat said, I'll do it. <laughs> so she went out and dug around. As you recall, if it was an important story, we'd give you time to dig into it and see if you could find something. She came back the next day and she says, this isn't a car. This is a, this is a fabrication. A marketing ploy. A marketing ploy that radio stations have agreed to do to prove the impact of radio advertising on car buyers' decisions. And I said, oh, <laughs> we're gonna do this one. So we're putting it together and our radio station hears that we're gonna pop the lid on this story that day. And the president of radio came down and got my office, he said, you can't run this. It's gonna ruin us, you're gonna, you know, how, do you, how are you gonna feel when you run the story about your own radio station running this uh, ad. How are you going to feel when you point out your own station is corrupt? He said, you're going to feel pretty stupid. I said, I'm not going to feel as stupid as you will. <laughs> <laughs> so he stormed out. He says, you, you kill a story. And I said, no. So he has a corporate attorney in Seattle call me. She called me and she said, I think you should consider carefully your career. And I said, it's exactly what I'm doing. This story is what makes a news career. So we're going to run it. If you want to fire me, do it. But it's an important story. And if we're exposing our own radio station, along with all the other radio guys, doesn't mean they were. Yeah, it was everybody. Guys were bad. But their plan was to go to the car dealers and say, hey, we just did a survey and you know, 80% of the people listening to radio say they've heard a car ad. Well, sure, they heard one. It wasn't a real one. So we ran the story, and boy, was I unpopular. <laughs> All the managers were mad at me. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's journalism. Yeah. That's, to me, the, it was an easy decision. Yeah. And, and, and I'm uh, glad, you know, you would, stay, would have staked your career. You would have taken the... Uh, uh, I mean, if they fired you, you would have taken it and taken it proud. I would have. I would, I would have been a lot better in the way I got run out of there. <laughs> the other way, the guy just said, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I felt, it's the, again, years, did you, you left in 88, something like that? 88 or 89, somewhere in there. I, I can't remember. It was, I'm sure I, for the 10 years afterward, I can remember it's kind of starting yeah. to numb up a little. 
Well, uh, that general manager is now my neighbor up here in Blackfeet Ranch, and we, <laughs> we, we see each other all the time. You know, we, we used to sit across the table from each other in union negotiations, but now uh, I see him on the golf course and, and things like that. Uh, uh, he, he did technically walk into our, our station when he came from Spokane, and he said, I'm a bean counter. That's what I do. He and was, and he that was, was different than the mission you'd been given. Exactly. Totally different. And I can't say that I um, am happy with him deciding not to have me be there. Because it, to me, that was the best job I ever had. And I never had another one I liked as much. But like you going on to anchoring, I went along and developing new television networks around the world. So I had a lot of fun for another 10 years. So. What, what I always felt bad about when that happened, when you left, uh, I mean, obviously they just decided they were going to go a different direction. But I think at that time, uh, there was a stationwide super duper research program that they did. Um, yeah. and, and then, uh, and of course, basically what it said to the news department that was doing well at the time, by the way, yeah, uh, basically, uh, what you guys are doing, uh, uh, isn't what the people want. Um, and what, I, what made me feel bad about that is they made you put us all through that and the meetings and you had to sit at the head of the table and say, you know, I know you're doing X, Y, and Z, and this is what I'm asking you to do. But the research says we need to do uh, elemental Q, and the only thing they care about is weather. And, and, and they made you go through that. And then right when that was done, they sent you out the door. It's like, okay, if you're not going to keep rigging around, don't put him through that crap. It, it was that, that final six months were really agony because there was no way I could endorse what they were trying to do. What, what the bigger issue was is they were convinced that all of the uh, working people um, weren't performing as uh, productively as they needed to be. And I resisted that strongly. And one of the funny things about it, remember those little surveys that they had around and you said, I, I feel empowered. Uh, I feel that my manager values what I do. And there were these kind of feely good surveys. And one of the guys in the newsroom came in, he says, oh man, he said, I, I, I really got Williams and I really got our general manager. He said on those things about my manager um, consults with me, I said, never. And, he doesn't value me as a person and all that. And I said, he's not your manager. I am. <laughs> I said, you just filled out a survey and says I'm a horrible person. <laughs> you just threw me out of the bus. <laughs> I said, I still got the tire marks from you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, again, uh, uh you know, nobody likes that when that happens. And I'm, you, you know, you're, you're doing a good job as far as the newsroom thought. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to land in a place that gave you, you know, great challenges and, and great uh, uh, satisfaction from then on. Uh, that's, that's an awesome way to be able to, to head out the door from one place and move on to the other place. You well, it was. Like around the world, right? Yeah. Uh, I, it started off kind of, um, traditional consultant go into an or a station and figure out what they're doing 
And over time, as I said, I got I got significantly better at being able to say, here's what's wrong, here's what needs to be done, blah, blah, blah. Um, in countries, they would somebody would get a new license and it would be to start a new network. So it'd be like if you said, uh, uh, BCD is going to start a new network to challenge ABC, NBC, all that, you know, a national channel. So they said, we need you to be the project director. And the, the first view I did, I was, you know, having to scramble around because that, that meant building transmission towers and building a station and buying cameras and creating programs and setting up a newsroom and all that kind of stuff. So it's really complicated and took massive amounts of my time and my effort and my attention. And of course, I was never home. And I told my wife kind of toward the back end of all this, uh, I'm never going to do another startup. It just takes too much out of me. She said, great, love to have you back. <laughs> so a little while later, I get this opportunity that when the, the ANC uh, in South Africa won the election and now you had the majority rule, the blacks now control their country. They decided we've got the South African broadcasting system and we've got one independent system and they're all run by white guys and it's all white programming and it's not indicative of our own culture. So we wanna have our own network. So I helped with the application process and the guys that I was working with got the award. So they said, okay, you can be the project director. And stupidly, I didn't know anything about South Africa. I mean, I knew, you know, these guys have had a long, difficult struggle, but I didn't know that you had a black-white issue, you had gangs, you had uh, various levels of society that were at odds with each other. And so it was really a contentious, dangerous, nasty place even though I liked it. I mean, I, I liked the, the people and it was an unbelievable challenge, but scary at the same time. And there were seven, no, six major um, groups, you know, the uh, Zulu and the Gosa and I can't remember them all. There's six of them. So we're, we're, when we're building the newsroom down there, it got really complicated, but anyway, I called my wife and said, I'm going to do South Africa. And she said, I thought you said you were never going to do another one. I said, but this, this is my opportunity to give back to broadcasting, to empower people to have a voice that have never had a voice before, to be able to give people the skills and opportunity that a digital uh, broadcasting society has offer. And it'll be a wonderful thing. It'll be a legacy that will live forever. And she said, fine. About three weeks into it, and I'm just hammering my house in a brick wall. I called her. I said, this is the worst. I can't stand it. i got to get out of here. She said, what about empowering these people to be free? That's, that's what a good wife is for, Regan. She said, I don't think you're finished yet. I'll wrap it up with a quick story to show you that it, it worked. I mean, yeah. It's a long story, but it took years, not months. The newsroom was up. It was number one. It was really doing well. And I had a Swahili woman, a Zulu woman who was an anchor. 
just elegant, really professional, beautiful diction, all that kind of stuff. We're all kind of standing around, you know, different groups and tribal groups and ethnic groups and everything. We're talking about it and kind of congratulating ourselves. And she looked at me and she said, you know, all the time you've been telling us this was going to happen, she said, we never really believed you. She said, now that it's happened, she said, you haven't taught us to believe you. You've taught us to believe in ourselves. <laughs> I went, time to go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's your giving back to broadcasting and giving that, people a voice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're, you're back to your photography roots now, right? You have a, Don't you have a show that's going uh, on? Yeah, I got a show coming up in Lake Oswego with Kevin Feltz. Uh, you remember hey. him, a cameraman? Yeah. Uh, Rich Blakesley was a film cameraman with me, and John Lesh, who was a friend of mine, is a still photographer. And it just occurred to me that guys like us that will never make a living off the still pictures we take, but we've always carried a still camera with us just because we love being able to take these pictures, but we've all got these negatives and slides and everything sitting in a box in the garage. So I said, wouldn't it be interesting to have each of us pick 10 of our favorites and let's do a show. And so I, I sent in a proposal to the Arts Commission and they said, yeah, let's do it. So it's opening in a couple of weeks and it's pretty good. I, I, I'm happy with what the other guys have done and I like my stuff too. So it'll, None of us are doing it for commercial gain. It's just we still do it because we love taking pictures. So where can people go there in Lake Oswego for that? Uh, it's at the the new um, Lake Oswego Arts Commission building. It's on A Street. I can't remember the address. If you go to um, Arts Commission of Lake Oswego website, they say, here's the show. It's called Visions of Four. Good. Well, um, we can... We can send folks that direction because they'll they'll be interested. A lot of your friends who will watch this will want to do that. Um, yeah. So uh, in prep for this interview, you said you wanted to talk about all this stuff, and we did. You didn't want to talk talk about the goofy stuff. <laughs> there's there's one goofy story that I want to get to. If you're not if, <laughs> if you're not comfortable, let me know and I'll take it out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, would you tell, or maybe I should tell, and you can tell me if it's true. The um, the duck decoy interview story. Yeah, I need to tell it because the story has gotten way bigger and way better than it was when I lived it. <laughs> okay, now, go ahead. We're in the newsroom, morning meetings over, we're going around and, and Melissa said, my, my assistant, she said, you got a guy on the phone as a viewer, he wants to talk to you. And I, he's, I got him, he said he had shot this wood duck, a male wood duck, they're really beautiful. And he said he just couldn't bring himself to butcher the thing and eat it. He said, does anybody there want this to stuff it in taxidermy? And I said, yeah, bring it down. I'll do it. So he brought it down, paper bag, and I sent it out to a guy I knew was a taxidermist. And by coincidence, when it was finished, Oddly enough, we were with flown a guy from San Francisco and interviewed to be a sports reporter. <laughs> and I don't know who he was replacing. You never were going anywhere, but anyway, we needed a sports reporter. So I had just picked up this duck and I was walking around showing people in the newsroom, wow, look at this, isn't this fabulous and how beautiful. 
Elliot Eckie went out to the lobby to get this guy. And as he gets the guy, you know, Eckie's sense of humor. As he's walking back with a guy to meet me, Eckie says, this Ramsey guy is pretty eccentric. He said, don't mention the duck. Whatever you do, don't bring up that duck. But he doesn't tell me he's done it. So he comes in and I'm still out in the newsroom walking around with this duck. And we're like, okay, come on in. We start the interview. I put the duck down. I don't say anything. The interview is all over and I've already decided this guy's not going to fit in with us. We're getting toward the end and the guy says, I got to ask. <laughs> I said, what? He said, what's the deal with the duck? And I said, oh, it's nothing. It's just a nothing. Thanks for coming. So this guy walks out thinking they've got an insane person running. <laughs> it's like he's got a dead duck as his assistant. <laughs> so Aki set me up, but I didn't know he'd set me up. <laughs> oh, see, uh, the version I heard, that's, I'm, I'm glad I asked because the version I heard was that you knew ahead of time this guy wasn't going to get the job, and you told Eki to tell the guy, don't ask about the duck. Oh, well, that might be a better version. <laughs> and, then, and then when the guy asked about the duck, you just said, this interview's over. <laughs> hey, your version's better than mine. Let's use that one. Yeah, but yours is the truth. Oh, man. So, uh, Regan, I really appreciate this time. I mean, the great thing about these interviews that I'm doing with folks is I'm talking with people that I haven't talked with for a long, long time. And the insight that I get and people that watch get is wonderful. I, I, the only thing I have to say is I, I wish we'd had this conversation when I was 23 years old and not 60. <laughs> <laughs> you did all right without it. So uh, I'm, I'm proud of you for all you accomplished and, uh, once again, I value the time we had together in the newsroom as I do with the, the core of what we had there was a unique and special time in broadcasting that I think sadly won't happen again. You know what it was? It was the good old days. It was the good old days and comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. <laughs>